I'm Jill Weinbanks here today for a special two-part series of Talking Feds with the sisters-in-law, Joyce Vance and Barbara McQuaid. We are recording this week to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. And we'll be talking with very special guests about voting rights. Today, in part one of the podcast, we'll be joined by Vanita Gupta, an American civil rights attorney. She is the president and chief executive officer of the Leadership Conference of Civil and Human Rights and is very involved in protecting our voting rights. We also are joined by Pam Carlin, who is also an American lawyer and a professor of law at Stanford Law School. She is a leading legal scholar on voting rights and the political process. She served as the Deputy Attorney General for Voting Rights in the Department of Justice from 2014 to 2015. And next week, we'll follow up with a conversation with Sherilyn Eiffel, a lawyer and the President and Director Counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. So I'd like to start today by asking Barbara and Joyce for your views of the 19th Amendment. Joyce, let's start with you. You know, I've always found it a little bit interesting that we talk about giving women the right to vote when in fact we actually had to affirmatively seize it for ourselves. It was these all-male legislatures in many cases that voted to quote-unquote give it to us, but women worked so hard behind the scenes to get the right to vote. And I was part of the Alabama Bar Association's task force on the 19th Amendment, and I was struck by the fact that this vote came down to the ballot of one young legislator in Tennessee, the youngest member of the Tennessee legislature, a 24-year-old who was going to vote against adopting the 19th Amendment. But he received a letter from his mom the morning of the vote, and it said, Dear son, hurrah and vote for suffrage. And so he did. And that was actually the linchpin vote in a decided Tennessee House that ended up giving women the right to vote. But we had to, we had to bring that into being ourselves. No one really gave it to us. Well, I think it is a great insight, Joyce. You know, I am wearing white today to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. It it is a white t-shirt, but it is white nonetheless, which was the color of the suffragettes. And I think it's so important to remember the sacrifices of the women that came before us. I think um, it's sometimes easy for me to forget about the fights and the battles that women before us had to endure to give us the rights that we have today. I know even Jill I've read your book, The Watergate Girl, which is phenomenal. I've told you this, but I've read more books this year than any other year because of COVID. And it's the best book I've read this year, in part, of course, because of the insights about Watergate. But it was also really eye-opening to me to see all of the sexism that you faced just in the 1970s, not that long ago. And so there are so many battles yet to be fought for voting rights and for other rights to achieve equal justice under law. And so every time we achieve one more milestone, it really is a great thing for our country. So I think it's important that we recognize and commemorate the 19th Amendment. Women didn't always have the right to vote. It is something we had to fight for, and we need to keep fighting to make sure that we become the more perfect union that the framers promised. Thank you. Thank you for that. It has been a long, hard fight, and it's sad that we still need the Equal Rights Amendment. It's sad that the Lilly Ledbetter Act was the first act passed in the Obama administration. I know that my husband said, I can't believe that women haven't always had equal pay. And yet in my lifetime, women didn't have equal pay and it was not illegal for women to be paid a differing rate, which is why we still need the Equal Rights Amendment. And I'm hoping that somehow that can become law as well as we move forward. But 
Today, let's be happy and celebrate the fact that we have the 19th Amendment. In today's episode, we'll be talking about how, in the time of COVID, we can do that. And especially because we now have a woman vice presidential candidate, Kamala Harris, who is also the first black woman to be on a major party's ticket and the first South Asian woman to be on a vice presidential candidate. So let's get on to talking to our wonderful guests. Our first guest is Vanita Gupta. Vanita is the president and CEO of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. But we all got to know Vanita in her prior job when she was the head of the Civil Rights Division at the U.S. Department of Justice. Vanita, welcome to Sisters-in-Law. It is so great to be here and so great to be with all my sisters-in-law. Thanks. Well, we're really interested, Vanita, in picking your brain about a topic that you've been doing a lot of work on, and that is voting rights during COVID. How can we best make sure that we are protecting people's right to vote during COVID? And what are some of the things we ought to be thinking about? Yeah, it's a really important question. Um, You know, in March, states started to postpone their primaries as COVID was really arriving on the United States shores. And we saw Louisiana and a slew of states postpone these primaries. And it was a wake-up call for states to think about what they needed to do to be prepared come the November election. There's been a real push from the civil rights community to make sure that states have expanded voting by mail, because obviously a lot of people are afraid of going into polling places. And the importance of vote by mail with the proper guardrails is really essential. You need voting by mail where Voters have prepaid postage, so you avoid any kind of potential for a poll tax that prevents voters from exercising their right to vote. You need voters to be able to send their ballots if they're postmarked on or by Election Day. They should be counted and you want there to be secure drop boxes. And then you want to make sure that you've got expanded in-person early voting because For a lot of communities, they are not comfortable voting by mail or they may not like Native American communities have access to U.S. Postal Services. So you need to make sure that you're still preserving in-person voting, but you need expanded early in-person voting. And that requires recruiting poll workers. And we can talk about that a little bit more. And then you need extended online voter registration. This is an unprecedented election in the middle of a global pandemic. And we've got to be able to make sure that states have the rules in place. We have to remember our democracy has been one where we have been able to have elections during the Civil War, during the Great Depression, during the Spanish flu. This country knows how to do it with adequate preparation. And Congress needs to be able to provide the funds to support the states in making these changes. Vanita, it seems like you just said the magic words there with key preparation. Are you seeing key preparation right now? What are your concerns as we head into uh, November? And maybe talk a little bit about what you think needs to happen in the forthcoming COVID legislation in order to protect the vote. So I think a lot of states have been making changes, and that's been really crucial, and have been kind of adopting these rules changes for November but not enough. And I am really concerned that we still have states that are creating and imposing harsh restrictions, including in your state, Joyce, and at the state of Alabama, where they're requiring witness for absentee ballot applications at a time where we're all being told to social distance. And these kinds of uh, barriers are going to be impediments for people to be able to vote by mail. So we're still seeing a lot of states that haven't made the necessary changes. We're pushing. There's a lot of movement to to make that happen. 
But the next COVID package really matters. There was $400 million in the first CARES Act to support states making these changes. Every state in the union actually asked for that money from the Election Assistance Commission, which is how the money was going out. But I am really worried, as you all are and have been, about the politicization of all of this. We're in a situation in this country that is at heightened polarization and division. And unfortunately, we've had a president really attack this very legitimate voting method of voting by mail. What I'm gratified to see is that secretaries of states around the country are resisting that politicization and trying to make the changes. But the next COVID package needs to have uh, the additional $3.6 billion. That number comes from an extensive study that was done by the Brennan Center. States need money for PPE for poll workers. They need money for ballot security and ballot counting devices. There's a whole slew of things that states need the money for. And right now, uh, the COVID package negotiations seem to be at an impasse. And so the question is, is the money going to come? And is it going to come soon enough for states to be able to use it to prepare for all of the changes that need financial support. Vanita, how soon do the states need the money? The election is less than 90 days away. It seems to me that for them to implement anything that would be meaningful means they have to have it probably yesterday. Yes. (laughs) Is there any wiggle room on this or do they need it right away? I mean, the reality is when you talk to secretaries of states, they they say that they can put the money to use immediately. The HEROES Act, which was the House passed over 10 weeks ago, contained this money and this funding. The Senate has not moved on any of this in the many weeks since. But states are saying that they could use the money quite quickly and put it to work. A lot of the money that was in the HEROES Act, I think 50% was going directly to counties, which would expedite the process. But I will tell you, Jill, that the states needed the money yesterday. We were all raising the alarm, and I was doing panels with Republican and Democratic secretaries of states back in June about the fact that they needed these funds to help support the changes that they're making. Now, the concern is, will the COVID package negotiations actually even happen this month? I just learned, but maybe some of you know more, that Mark Meadows is on vacation now with his wife. And that suggests that these negotiations have been stymied and that there's this notion that the executive orders that the president put in place last weekend somehow are sufficient. They are by no means sufficient, and they contained zero allocations for the elections. And then, of course, we should talk about the U.S. Postal Service, which is also a very key part of both our economic and democratic infrastructure, especially amid an election where so many more people in many states, the majority of voters are going to be voting by mail and rely on the functioning of the U.S. Postal Service. Benita, what, what's up with it? Why do you think President Trump seems to be determined to gut the Postal Service, knowing that that could wreak havoc on, on the election? Doesn't that hurt Republican voters just as much as, as other voters? I don't really get it. What do you think's going on there? Well, we all saw the tweet last week where the president suddenly reversed course after weeks of attacking voting by mail, saying the election is going to be rigged. In my mind, all of those those tweets were really about trying to sow the seeds for delegitimizing an election that he could lose. But last week, suddenly he reversed course and said, well, 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 actually, though, in the state of Florida, voting by mail is going to work and literally acknowledged blatantly the the politicization by saying it's because it'll work in Florida because Florida has a Republican governor. 
that's not really how these things work. The same voting by mail system that exists in Florida exists in other states. And so, look, the president has really, unfortunately, politicized all of this. And the U.S. Postal Service has fallen prey to it. There's no way to understand why the president put in place a donor with no real experience in anything related to the U.S. Postal Service, who is now just under 90 days before the election making cuts that postal workers and leaders are very clearly crying out in alarm and saying these are causing significant delays in the mail. And it's really the COVID negotiations contains relief for the U.S. Postal Service, which has been in kind of a fiscal crisis for quite some time, really because of how it is structured. And we don't need to get into too many of these details, but it means that it's that much more incumbent so long as we don't know when the U.S. Postal Service could get this financial support uh, that states actually change the rules to make sure that ballots that are postmarked on or by election day. I've been hearing folks yesterday on TV from from Trump's campaign saying, well, that means that people are going to be able to vote after election day and ballots will be collected. No, that's illegal. What states are doing, and every single state needs to do this, is to say that they will count any ballot that is postmarked on or by election day. So we have to resist this like fake narrative that is being ginned up, that if you allow that to happen, that means that people will be able to vote after election day. The postmark has to be on or by. And states have done this and done it for for years with no problem. And every state in the union needs to do this. Vanita, I fear that a lot of the damage that's being done with the post office is that now that this narrative is out there about delays with the post office, people actually won't apply for absentee ballots. I hear a lot of people telling me that they're worried about whether they'll get the ballot. They're worried about whether they'll be able to get it back in time. Hear what you're saying about any ballot that's mailed on election day should count. But in Alabama, your ballot has to be received five days before the election in order for it to count. So what Trump is doing effectively, again, is is sowing this narrative of confusion that could discourage people from voting. How do we fight back, given that that's already out there? Well, I think this is exactly right. And I didn't fully answer Barb's question, which is the irony here is that there's evidence that these kinds of tweets and posts by the president are actually dissuading Republican voters and voters in rural communities from voting. And my guess is that with the reversal, of course, with regards to his views on Florida's voting by mail came from Governor DeSantis probably telling him it's going to be hurting him politically. But I think on this question, Joyce, of what you're talking about, this is why voter education right now is so incredibly important. The rules are changing and it is it's a lot for voters to absorb to understand what mechanisms are going to be available, how to apply for absentee ballots in a state like New York. In 2016, it was around 5% of voters were voting by mail. We're contemplating an election now where 60-70% of voters could be voting by mail. And people don't know how to apply for the absentee ballots. They don't know where to drop them off. But voter education has to be on steroids. And what's really challenging about doing voter education at this moment is that the rules are still changing in real time. So the leadership conference has been doing a lot of advocacy with Facebook around what they are doing or not doing to fight voter suppression and give users accurate information in the face of very intentional disinformation campaigns and efforts to suppress the vote by politicians. And they 
at our urging, created this voter information center that is going to be providing its users in the United States with accurate real-time voter information about how the rules are changing. Secretaries of states are leading campaigns. Nonprofit organizations are leading campaigns in every state to educate voters about how they can vote in this November election amid a pandemic. But these are some serious challenges. I'm not going to lie to you. And all of you are in states that are dealing with these things. And Joyce, with Alabama having the rules that it has, I mean, it would be great to hear from you actually for you to lay out, because I think Alabama has got some of the greatest restrictions and has not made sufficient changes for voting amid this pandemic. We've got a real huge task on our hands, and it's why we are deploying every tactic we know to, to educate voters, influencers, celebrities, local and state elected officials. The further out you get from Washington, the more accurate sometimes the information can be, but you still are in states that where you do have secretaries of states that are not trying to make it easier. And voter suppression and racial discrimination in voting has just been such a feature in our country. And I am very concerned about officials weaponizing COVID literally to make people sit at home. And people forget that actually chilling political participation is one of the most dangerous forms of voter suppression that we have and the ability to use the fear in this pandemic is really is really significant. And it's why when there was initially this push to say every state needs to have voting by mail and that's going to be the sole answer, the civil rights community was saying, no, you have to preserve in-person voting and you have to expand it because there are too many communities that just culturally don't vote by mail or are going to continue to be afraid. And these kinds of disinformation campaigns are only going to fuel that and so it's all got to be of a package to, to be able to have this work. But we still have a lot of work to do. And we still have to recruit poll workers. You can't have polling places open or expanded when you know our typical poll worker is a retiree more vulnerable to the effects of COVID. And so now there's also a massive push. We've been involved in Power of the Polls to get younger folks to sign up to be poll workers, get them trained, get them hooked up with local and state election officials so they can be deployed in the weeks of, because this is really an election season, not election day. Benita, I'm so glad you mentioned that last point about recruiting some of the younger people, because one of the most common questions I get on my social media is, what can I as a citizen do? How can I participate? And is there any other things that people can actually do right now to help make sure that they can safely vote in this time of COVID? You can sign up to be a poll worker. Go to powerthepolls.org. It's really important that your senators in particular, that you are engaging your senators and telling them how important it is that they fund the U.S. Postal Service, that they put the elections money in the next COVID package, and that you expect a COVID package when people are literally dying in our communities without relief and are suffering from joblessness. But a, a third thing, and I think this is really important, is all of us need to be voting early. Whether we decide to do it by absentee ballot or whether we decide to do it in states that have early voting, vote as early as you can. Apply for your ballot. If you're doing this by absentee, figure out, go to vote.org and find out how you can get an absentee ballot in your state. It's got it broken down for every state. Apply for that ballot early fill out the application, figure out on vote.org where the drop-off, either the secure drop-off boxes are or how you send it back by mail and get that done so that we relieve the pressure on November 3rd. And it is an uncomfortable thing because we are always trying to, you know, we're in a breaking news media culture, but it will be a mistake to call the election results based on in-person voting or to overestimate 
the in-person voting or the exit polls, because this election will be unlike any other and much higher percentages of people will be voting by mail. And so the earlier we can all vote, the less pressure it puts on the system at the back end. And I think it'll actually enable election officials to do their job. And that's just incumbent on each of us. But I will say, you've got to also check your registration right now. Don't wait until two weeks before when it may be too late to figure all of this out. And, and then educate and help educate your friends and family about these rules. We are all emissaries in our communities for these things. And it's really important that we are educated and educating our kind of nearest and dearest so that we can bring them along in this process. I just have one follow-up to that, which is this issue of the announcement that the states are going to have to pay 55 cents to mail the ballots, which have always been 20 cents, a special rate. Is there something that Congress can do? Is there something that people can do? Or is this something that Donald Trump is going to get away with in terms of suppressing the vote by requiring that? So I think this is absolutely outrageous. And so I know that Senator Schumer and the Democratic leadership that is involved in the negotiations has been really pushing back on the states right now. Red and blue are strapped for cash, to say the very least, and to demand that private citizens, U.S. citizens have to basically pay the cost for congressional inaction on supporting the U.S. Postal Service. Let me just repeat that the amount is like $25 billion. It's almost a rounding error in a certain way for the trillions of dollars that are going out to states and that are kind of the basis for these COVID relief packages. Congress needs to do its job and actually fund the U.S. Postal Service. So that is an area where there's a lot of pressure right now now being put, whether or not the Senate will successfully do this remains to be seen. It's why we need to put maximum pressure on right now. But to think that private citizens will need to now defray these costs is completely absurd. And yet it is a contingency that people are thinking about. I, I think in all likelihood, there will be litigation on this issue as well. Vanita Gupta, thank you for joining us on Sisters-in-Law. You really point out that uh, even though we've had the right for women to vote for 100 years, we still need to fight for it every day. And we so appreciate all the work you're doing to fight for our right to vote. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a real honor to get to introduce to our listeners Stanford Law Professor Pam Carlin, who you may remember from the House hearings on impeachment. Pam once told a group of law students that although she has some regrets in life, quote, I don't ever regret being kind of snarky, close quote. Her candor and directness, her commitment to speaking truth to power are simply legendary. Pam is also one of the nation's leading experts on voting and the political process. Among many other accomplishments, she's a former deputy assistant attorney general for DOJ's Civil Rights Division and a Supreme Court law clerk to Justice Blackman. Pam, thanks for joining us and welcome to the podcast. We've got a lot of questions for you. Thanks so much for having me. It's just, it's great to be back with you and, and with Barb. And obviously, Jill was somebody I was like a fan of when I was small. I hoped to grow up to be Jill, but. This feels a little bit like old times at DOJ talking about voting. So I'll start with a really basic question for you. The president keeps insisting that voting by mail, even though the military has done it for years and that the method of delivery has worked really well, is rife with fraud. And and he seems to insist that somehow voting by mail is different from absentee voting. Is there really a fraud problem here? Is, Is there any truth to what he's saying? 
Not really. People have been voting by mail since the Civil War. I mean, the, the origins of voting by mail in the United States were that Lincoln did not want to have to bring the troops home from the field in 1864, because that would mean a risk of losing the Civil War. And we've voted by mail since then in large numbers. I mean, this will be the largest vote by mail uh, election in American history because so many people because of COVID don't want to go to the polls in person. But there's no reason to think that there will be serious fraud. Pam, what do you think, though, when Abraham Lincoln was president, we weren't worried about the president holding the Postal Service hostage. With President Trump, if he is killing off the Postal Service, can we feel assured that if we put our ballot in the mail, it's actually going to get counted? Well, that's the real worry is it's not so much that voting by mail is problematic. It's that President Trump is trying to turn it into something problematic by starving the post office of funds, by suggesting to people that voting by mail isn't safe. I mean, One thing I kind of hope that we can get across to the people who are listening to this is if you can vote early, vote early. If you can vote in person early and you're not concerned about it, do that. Because the idea is to get as many people voting as early as possible so that you don't have huge bottlenecks on election day itself. Pam, given your background at the Department of Justice and the voting emphasis, is there anything that someone other than the Department of Justice who is trying to undermine the election, some other organization, some other entity that they could do in terms of litigation to protect the right of voters to get their votes cast? I mean, there's there's litigation going on all over the country. There are probably 100 lawsuits right now for everything ranging from challenges in some states to, you know, in Joyce's state of Alabama, the rule has always been you have to get your absentee ballot notarized, which means you can't vote from home by yourself. And so there's litigation going on over that. There's litigation going on to ensure that signature matching is done correctly. Because one of the things that happens when you vote by mail is you have to sign in most states the outer envelope. So your vote is in an anonymous inner envelope, but you have to sign the outer envelope. And sometimes people don't do that. Some states are really good about contacting voters on that. Others aren't. Uh, There's litigation going on challenging the attempt in Florida to prevent the recently re-enfranchised former offenders from having the ability to vote. There's litigation in Texas over Texas's refusal to provide absentee ballots, to provide vote-by-mail ballots to people under the age of 65, unless they meet a very narrow set of criteria. So there's litigation going on all over the country. It's being brought by nonprofit, nonpartisan groups like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund or MALDEF or the Campaign Legal Center. It's being brought by the political parties. When you see a case that's ostensibly about voting rights and the title of the case is Republican National Committee against Democratic National Committee, you know that this is a kind of full employment act for lawyers. Pam, I think there's so much confusion about how this is going to work, largely because we don't really have one national election. We've really got 50 states and the military and some territories conducting elections under different rules. But given this really bizarre intersection of the COVID pandemic with the election, what should states be doing to protect the right to vote? What would it look like if we were a country where our elected officials were fully engaged in guaranteeing the right to vote? in this moment. So there are a bunch of states where the elected officials, and this is true of both Democratic and Republican officials, 
are committed to making sure that everybody has the right to vote. And so, for example, in California, where I live, the Secretary of State is mailing ballots to every registered voter at their registration address. And you have the option of mailing that ballot back, vote by mail. You have the option of dropping it off at various government office buildings. You have the ability to show up on election day at the polls and turn it in. And if you make a mistake, you can go and get another ballot. So that's one way of doing things. A second thing that a number of jurisdictions have done is they have relaxed the requirements for getting a vote by mail ballot. So there were some places where you used to need one of a narrow set of excuses, and they've defined that to now include fear of catching COVID. So anybody who wants to vote by mail can do it. Early voting has been very powerful in a number of places, particularly in some parts of the South with regard to the African-American community. They like early voting because you can go and vote and get assistance from your pastor or from community members. So souls to the polls is what it's sometimes referred to as because you can do early voting on a Sunday. And that also means that the lines are going to be shorter on election day because a lot of people will have voted before. For them. States are making all kinds of efforts to make sure that they can get poll workers on election day. Because one of the things you probably have noticed if you've voted in person recently is poll workers tend to be older Americans. And those are folks who are at particular risk. So there are places that are, for example, recruiting young people to be poll workers and learning how to sanitize polls, making sure that the poll workers have PPE so that they don't get. Nobody used to think that you had to disinfect a voting machine between every voter, but now you really do have to do that. And so there's all sorts of stuff. I know secretaries of state have been meeting on these things. County election officials have been meeting on them. So there's a lot that can be done. A lot of it requires money, though. And that's one of the things that is really a problem is Congress is kind of starving the states of money at a time when they really need funds to ensure that we get an election that works. Well, you have to wonder, why is it that people want to make it harder and not easier to vote? You know, we were at the Justice Department together when the Supreme Court decided the Shelby County versus Holder case. And uh, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. But it seems like ever since then, we've seen all of these efforts in states to have ID laws and gerrymandering and other kinds of things that are making it harder for people to vote. Yeah, well, you know, when you say you got to wonder why, President Trump kind of told you why. He said if everybody in the country voted, the Republicans would never win another election. And so there, there are two ways of winning election. One is to get your people out, and the other is to prevent people who are unlikely to vote for you to show up at the polls. My view is right now, in large parts of the country, the Republican Party thinks it will not win an election if every eligible voter can vote. So you try to make sure that they don't. You get rid of early voting. You get rid of same-day registration. You have ID laws. And it's not just that they're ID laws. They're ID laws where they pick In some of these states, they pick the kinds of IDs you can use based on which ones they think Democrats have and which ones Republicans have. So in Texas, the legislature passed a law where, you know, and you'll remember this because we were at DOJ when DOJ challenges, they passed a law that said you couldn't use your student ID from the University of Texas. You couldn't use your government ID as a city worker in Houston, but you could use your concealed carry permit. Where is that coming from? So you don't have to wonder. You have to be appalled, I think. Aren't Republicans outraged by this as much as Democrats? I mean, it's so blatantly apparent that this is a political 
action to prevent Democrats from casting their ballots. It's targeting poorer and minority communities in terms of removing polling places and mailboxes. It's removing mailboxes in blue districts, even in red states and of, of blue states, and not in the red states. So why hasn't any Republican said, this is democracy's finest moment in terms of our right to vote? What can we do to get Republicans to join the fight to protect voting in less than 80 days now? So there are two things going on there, Jill. One is you got to separate like the average person out there in the street from the political folks who are in control of the purse strings and the election. So I'll give you one example of that that I find incredibly powerful. 65% of voters in Florida voted to re-enfranchise ex-offenders. And if you just look at the number of Democrats and Republicans in Florida, that means like 35 or 40% of Republican voters voted to re-enfranchise people once they have completed their sentence. And then the Florida legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, tries to make it really, really, really difficult for those uh, ex-offenders to register and cast a ballot. And the Florida government, which is controlled by Republicans, basically says, we won't be able to tell these people until 2026 whether they're eligible to vote or not, right? So they're going to lose their right to vote for six years even though Republican people on the street supported their right to vote. So the first thing is to kind of separate that out. The second thing is to recognize that people's understanding comes from the media they watch. And so if you watch the presidents and Fox News and they just keep screaming fraud, 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 you get worried about fraud and you don't think about the importance of every citizen should have the right to cast a ballot and have that ballot counted. I'm not sure that it's really a Republican Democratic thing in the electorate as a whole. That is, lots of Republican voters have been voting, especially older Republican voters, have been voting by mail for a decade now. So it's not like they hate vote by mail. But they've got a president who's telling them every day that the election's going to be stolen and who is simultaneously trying to steal the election in various ways. And we're just a very divided country right now. We are. And hopefully we can get a message out to Republican voters that their vote is being taken away, too, that democracy is suffering from it and that they must hold their government accountable to this, their representatives, their congressmen, their local state officials, all of them. And when you starve the post office, you're not just starving people's ability to vote. You're starving their ability to get their medications. You're starving their ability to get letters from their loved ones while they're in COVID and everything. Um, and you would think people would recognize that the post office is not just for Democrats. The post office is for everybody. Pam, we've talked a lot about mail-in voting and why it makes sense, but even with that enhanced opportunity to vote by mail and leaving aside the post office controversy for a minute, a lot of people still want to vote in person. Can you explain why that is and why it's important for us to maintain both in-person and mail-in opportunities to vote? Sure. So some people want to vote in person because they actually need assistance to vote. Either they are limited English proficiency, or they have a physical disability, or they have concerns about whether their vote will actually get counted. So those folks, they need to vote in person. In some states which have same-day registration, some people aren't registered. And you can't vote by mail if you're not already registered, but you can go on election day, register, and cast a ballot. And so some people do it for that reason. There's a tradition in some parts of the Black community in the South where they're just worried. They want to see their vote go into the ballot box. 
And this gives them that assurance. And, you know, California has long been a no excuse absentee voting state. And lots of people here vote, obviously, by mail. I like to vote in person because there's just something powerful about going and standing in a line, one hopes for not too long, and being part of a kind of citizenry that's getting together on this one day. It's not that I think we should be running our elections completely by mail, although it's perfectly fine to do that. I mean, Colorado's done that for a while. Oregon, Washington, Utah do that. But people should have options. Make it as easy for people to vote in a way that they're comfortable with. Pam, I feel a lot the same way about voting. I've actually dragged a little bit applying for my absentee ballot. I I will use Alabama's new no-excuse absentee voting provision to vote this year, but I'm grieving that loss of full participation in this tradition where my neighbors and I, we line up when the polling place opens, we go in, we vote, we get the sticker, and it's a proud moment for me. And I think at the risk of sounding a little bit sappy and a little bit sentimental, I'll just say that I hope something that comes out of this is that people really do appreciate that we have the right to vote in this country, that it's not a privilege, it's a right, and that any elected officials that are working to keep us from voting are really not worthy of the votes that we're going to cast this fall. And I'd add to that, Joyce, that it's not just a privilege and a right. It is a responsibility. That's what democracy depends on. But Pam, I also wanted to go back to something you said, which was about some of the hurdles and why people want to vote in person. It seems to me that there are workarounds. There are hacks for every one of the problems you raise so that someone with a physical disability or with limited English, for example, can get help at home. No one is preventing that. So if you need a translator, you could get someone to come in. And it's certainly as safe to have one person masked in your home helping you as it would be to have someone at the polling place where there are other people. Is there anything illegal about solving it that way rather than forcing people who need assistance to go to a polling place where it may be dangerous? No, the Federal Voting Rights Act allows you to have assistance from any person you want, and they can go into the voting booth with you even, except for a representative of your employer or your union. So otherwise, general volunteers, poll workers, states have, there have been a bunch of states which have for a while, for example, done curbside voting for people with disabilities so they don't have to come into the polling place. So that can that can be an option. There are all sorts of websites. A good Secretary of State's website or a good county election official's website will tell people how they can get assistance. Some of the states that have gone to complete vote by mail have come up with ways of assisting people, for example, who are in long-term care facilities and the like. So there, there are obviously workarounds for having to go and stand in line at the polls. And even just a little thing like allowing people to pick a time and make essentially a reservation to go and vote would make the lines less long, right? If you knew that you only had to stand in line for a half hour if you signed up to vote at 6 p.m. or vote at 3 p.m. or the like. So it's not that it's not that we can't solve this problem. I mean, we put people on the moon. We got rid of smallpox. This is not rocket science like the first or medical science like the second, but it takes, I mean, this goes back to Joyce's point, it takes political will on the part of government officials to do this. And it takes political will on our part to show up and and, and vote, even if it means standing in line, even if it means making sure weeks in front of the election that you request an absentee ballot. 
like all of you, I love showing up on election day among my neighbors and casting my vote in person. But this year, I'm not doing it because I want to free up space for those who need to go to the polls. I'm getting an absentee ballot. But Pam, I'm interested in a different concern. And that is, even though it is Congress who sets election day, President Trump never ceases to shock me. And I wonder if he doesn't have some trick up his sleeve to postpone the election in light of COVID-19. Well, he actually doesn't have the power to postpone the election. Hasn't stopped him before. Well, I know. But um, I mean, this goes back to something Joyce was saying earlier. We have this incredibly decentralized system. It's not really even just 50 elections. It's probably closer to like several thousand elections because in most states, county election officials are actually running the election. There are all sorts of things I'm, I'm worried about with this election. I don't think that postponing the election will work for a couple of reasons. One is a huge number of people already have voted by election day precisely because they're voting by mail or they're doing early voting. So that it's not as if there's just one day and you only have to postpone eight hours. You have to postpone an awful lot of stuff. And I think the the backlash, the political backlash to that would be so huge that I find it hard to, I mean, nothing's impossible, but I find it hard to imagine that we're not going to have the election. And the other thing to keep in mind is whether we have the election or not, it's absolutely clear under the Constitution that at noon on January 20th, this presidential term ends. And unless he has won a majority in the Electoral College, he has to leave office then. Yeah. And then who do you think becomes president? Because I know we hear a lot of people say Nancy Pelosi, but that if there's no election, she doesn't get reelected either. Well, the interesting question is when you say if there's no election, that depends on each secretary of state. And my guess for what it's worth is that there will be an election in California and people will be certified as having won that election in California, regardless of what happens in the White House. So Nancy Pelosi will be the speaker, and maybe that is the specter that keeps President Trump from even exploring this idea. Well, she'll be the speaker if if a majority of the people who are sworn into the House of Representatives on January 3rd are Democrats. Right now, she's the speaker. She'll be the speaker if the Democrats control the House of Representatives. Well, you've just given me great hope because it seems obvious that the county clerks in all the blue areas will go ahead with the election. And if any Republicans decide to postpone the election, then you'll have a lot more blue votes. We would take the House and the Senate because the only votes cast are going to be the blue areas. But then there's this weird complication, which is the the, the elections are run at the county level, but in most states, the secretary of state or somebody like that signs the election certificates. So you've got some states, I mean, Barb is in one of these states, Michigan, where you've got a Democratic governor, but the Republicans still control the legislature. Yeah, Yeah, right. I'm working on a book review right now, this book by Lawrence Douglas called Will He Go?, which is about all the different disastrous scenarios you could have. And then the question of what happens. It's a kind of doomsday book. And then, of course, there have been like 40 more doomsday scenarios since the book was written. If you have a complete and utter election meltdown, it's a little hard to know exactly what happens because you could have, for example, some states where it's pretty clear that a majority of the voters voted for Joe Biden, but the state legislature then decides we don't think the election worked fairly, so we're going to appoint the electors and we're going to appoint the electors who are pledged to Donald Trump. But what happens then? I try to retain my sunny optimism. There's a margin of error in every election. And what you really want is for the margin of error to be less than the margin of victory. Doesn't all of this confusion and these possible scenarios play into the president's narrative that people can't trust the outcome of the election, 
that the election could be stolen from him, that there could be fraud? And how do we help the American people retain confidence in the process? Does the process deserve our confidence? And if so, how do we help ourselves as a country move forward with confidence after what's certain to be a really hotly contested election? That is a tough question to answer, Joyce, because we've never had a presidential candidate before for a major party who basically says before the election, I'm not going to accept the outcome of this election unless I'm the winner. And even then, I'm not going to accept that many people didn't vote for me, right? I mean, even in, in the 2016 election, he won't admit something which is demonstrably true, which is more Americans voted for Hillary Clinton than voted for him. And he won the election because we used the Electoral College. But he can't admit even that he didn't win the popular vote. And he is not going to admit that he lost this time around. So how we get beyond this moment in talking about voting is a really important question. And it's a, it's a question that I think some of it's going to be answered by the election itself. If he loses hugely, he and some of his supporters will claim it's been fraudulent, but most people will accept the result. If it's a very close election, lots of people will think that whoever won, won unfairly. And if he wins the election, lots of people will think he won the election because he suppressed the vote. I mean, it's a kind of irony that because he's done so much to challenge the integrity of the election, people are not going to think he won the election fair and square, regardless of what happens. Does history offer us any guidance about how, as a country, we handle this situation? Or is this just totally unprecedented in our country's history? So there have been really close elections where there was a real question about fraud. I mean, Jill is in Chicago, right? And in 1960, there's a real question whether John F. Kennedy won Illinois fair and square. Richard Nixon graciously said, I'm not going to challenge the results of the election. In 2000, there was a real question of who won in Florida. And even after the National Research Council did hand recounting of the ballots, it depended on what rule you used, who was going to win that election or not. But after the Supreme Court spoke and Florida certified its electoral votes for George Bush, Al Gore said, I'm going to accept the decision of the Supreme Court. So the last time we had an election where there wasn't acceptance was the election of 1876, where there was huge amounts of violence. This was the election at the very end of Reconstruction. There was violence at the polls in Louisiana and in a couple of the other southern states. We ended up with a commission deciding that Rutherford Hayes rather than Samuel Tilden won. It led to the compromise that ended Reconstruct the first Reconstruction in the South and made necessary the second Reconstruction. And we're probably going to need a third Reconstruction after that. We've had elections in the past that have where the outcome has not been clear. And the most recent two in 1960 and 2000, the person who ultimately was declared the loser accepted that in a way that allowed the country to move forward. Donald Trump is not going to accept the outcome, and it wouldn't matter if he lost every single state. He'll just say it's fraud. That's an awfully depressing note to close on. So I hope that after the election is over and we're on the other side, we'll have a chance to get back together with you again, Pam, and do an after analysis and discuss the fact that the American election system has held, that the institutions have held, and that we're ready to move forward. But obviously, this is a difficult moment in our history, and it's not possible to sugarcoat it. So I thank you for being so flat out and so honest with us about this very difficult time we're about to go through. 
I'll just end with something that I think is kind of hopeful, maybe, which is when Congress went back into session, I think this was maybe in 2010 or 2012, the members of the House of Representatives all stood up and they read the entire Constitution piece by piece. And it was first come, first serve for all of the sections of the Constitution, except there was one where it wasn't. And that was they let John Lewis read the 13th Amendment. And if you think about like what John Lewis faced in his life, and you think about what voting looked like when he was the age of the people who are just going to vote for the first time in this election, it was nothing like where we are today. And so it's important to recognize that voting makes a difference and people can make a difference by voting. I think those are words of wisdom for this time. Pam, Carlin, thank you so much for being with us on the Sisters-in-Law episode of the Talking Feds podcast. We really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Pam and Vanita, for joining us to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment. Voting rights have come a long way in 100 years, but we still have so much work to do. Thanks to my sisters-in-law, Joyce Vance and Barbara McQuaid. Stay tuned next week for part two of this special series with Sherilyn Eiffel, lawyer and president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. In the meantime, please remember to register for your mail-in ballot and vote early. And we'd love it if you tweet a photo of yourself voting with hashtag sistersinlaw. See you next time.